Well, good morning. For those who do not know me, my name is Mikey Warren, and it is my privilege to serve here at Sovereign Grace as the youth director and serve those who are from the ages of 7th grade all the way until 12th grade. We've also started a young adult ministry here at the church, so we're thankful for that as well, and I have the privilege of serving in that ministry at the church as well. With that said, we'll be in God's Word this morning in John chapter 10 and in verses 1 through 10. John 10, 1 through 10, follow along with me as I read and then I'll open with a word of prayer. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep. Did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Again, we thank you this morning for the great blessing that it is to hear your word, to hear the great truths of who you are and what you've done in Christ. We thank you that we get to hear that in the singing of your word and the singing of these great truths, but also through the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. So as your word is read and as your word is preached, God, I pray that we would have listening ears to hear. God, that we would give our attention to you and to your word this morning. And we pray that your spirit would be at work to give us understanding, to convict us where conviction is needed, to comfort and to build us up where we need to be comforted. God, we pray again in all things that you'd be glorified and that Christ would be exalted and that we would be edified and built up. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Now, about two years ago or so, Chad and I were heading off to Philadelphia to go to the Banner of Truth conference on the East Coast. And I remember that plane ride, particularly for two things. I mean, the first thing I remember it for was because Woody Harrelson was on the plane. And that was pretty cool to me because I think, at least as an actor, he's kind of a cool actor. He's probably a little strange in real life, but it was still cool to see him in person. 
But also, I remember that plane ride because I remember some of the conversations that we had with the people sitting around us. I remember there was a couple that sat in front of us. And when they found out that we were pastors and that we were going to a minister's conference, they had some thoughts or questions. And I remember the woman in front expressing that her and her husband used to go to church. It had been, you know, a long time that they used to have one they actively went to. But it's been a really long time since they'd went. I remember that there was another guy who was sitting kind of near us as well who'd heard and he had mentioned that, oh yeah, I go to church as well. I'm a Christian. And I think he mentioned the denomination that he was a part of. I don't really remember all the details, but I do remember that as he was saying this, something along these lines came out of his mouth. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that we love one another. And I think what he was getting at was it doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of. It doesn't matter, I guess, whether you go to church anymore or not. All that matters is that we love one another because if we do, we all end up in the same place. Whether that same place is heaven or eternal life or just some better place that's after where we are right now. It's as if we're all outside of this house. And inside this house is God or eternal life or heaven. And we're all trying to find our way in. And there's a number of different access points into the house. There's a front door that you can go through, which is, you know, the most common door to go through. But then there might be a back door that you can go through, maybe a side door, maybe something more unconventional is, you know, climbing up to the second level and going through a balcony window or I mean, if you just need to smash through one of the bottom door windows and break in that way, that's fine too. All that matters is that we end up in the house together. How you get there doesn't matter. Well, this position, this viewpoint that I think is very common in the world that we live in is in complete opposition to the truth of the Scriptures, and it's in complete opposition to the Word of God. And our text this morning demonstrates this very clearly. The big idea is simply this. There is only one true door. There is only one true door into fellowship with God. There is only one true door into salvation. And there is only one true door into eternal life. And there are no other legitimate points of entry. Now, this morning, we're continuing our study of the I Am sayings of Jesus in John's Gospel. And John chapter 10 covers two of the I Am sayings. But this morning, we're only going to cover one, and we'll cover the second one in a couple of weeks. That's why this morning, as we begin to cover John 10, it'll feel a little bit incomplete, because at the end of the day, it is incomplete. But we'll come back to it later. But my aim and my hope this morning for all of us is that we would come to rest and rejoice in the salvation and life that is found only in this one true door.
And in order to do so, we'll consider four truths concerning this one true door. Firstly, we'll consider the necessity of the door. Secondly, the identity of the door. Thirdly, the exclusivity of the door. And then four, by way of application, we'll consider the blessings of entering into this door. But before we press into the main points this morning, we need to do a little bit of background work to catch us up as to where we are in John chapter 10. If you remember in John chapter 8, last week, Russell picked up the third I am saying that we've covered. And that I am saying was simply, I am. Jesus declared himself to be, I am. And by declaring himself to be, I am, he declared himself to be one greater than Abraham, which was a huge point of contention with the unbelieving Jews and the religious leaders. But in claiming for himself to being I am, he was also claiming to be divine. He was also claiming to be, at least in one sense, equal with God, or he was claiming to be God himself. And this is ultimately what he was claiming to do. And the unbelieving Jews and the religious leaders heard this, and they responded, if you remember, by picking up stones, and they were ready to stone him to death for this blasphemy. And Jesus responds to them picking up stones by fleeing from the temple. And then we move into chapter 9, and Jesus, upon fleeing the temple, continues his ministry, and he does so by healing a man who was born blind. And when Jesus heals this man, he not only gives him physical sight, but he also gives him spiritual sight. This man eventually, upon Jesus healing his physical sight, this man ultimately comes to confess Jesus to being the Christ and confessing him to be the Son of God. And when the Pharisees hear that this man has confessed Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of the living God... They bring them to him and they question him. And after they've gathered enough information to determine that this man is now following after Jesus, that he is one of their disciples, they cast him out of the synagogue. They consider him cut off from the covenant people of God. He is no longer a part of the fold. He is now out of the fold. And when Jesus hears about how the Pharisees had removed this man from the synagogue and cast him out of the fold, Jesus begins to challenge them. He begins to challenge them, and he ultimately judges the Pharisees as to being the ones who are truly blind. Truly blind to the Scriptures, blind to the truth, blind to who he truly is. And what's fascinating about Jesus's actions here is they're ultimately fulfilling what was told of him in Ezekiel 34 you don't need to turn there I'll I'll read it briefly but Ezekiel 34 verses 1 through 5 says this the word of the Lord came to me son of man son of man again being a messianic title that we know Jesus often used of himself of the word of the Lord came to me son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, 
Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you ruled them. So Jesus' actions here comes as really a fulfillment of what Ezekiel 34 says that the Messiah would do, that he would judge the wicked shepherds of Israel. And in chapter 10, Jesus continues this rebuke. He continues this judgment. But he continues with this judgment in the form of a parable or a figure of speech. There aren't any parables in the typical way we see them brought up as in the other Gospels. Some refer to it as a parable. Some think we shouldn't refer to it as a parable. I don't think it matters all that much. So I'll probably refer to it as a parable. But Jesus continues his judgment with the parable in verses 1 through 5. So look with me again at verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but cuts in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So some of the imagery that we have here, we have a sheepfold, and a sheepfold was an enclosure, typically with four walls, made up of large stones to provide rest and protection to the sheep that were within the sheepfold. And these sheepfolds came with a small gap or small opening. Sometimes they would have an actual gate or some sort of door that was in between them, but oftentimes they didn't have one, and it was common that the shepherd would lay down between the gap and would be himself the door. And I think That definitely picks up some of the imagery that we see here when Jesus refers to himself as the door. But we have a sheepfold and we have a door or a gate. You can also refer to it as a gate. He also mentions a shepherd and he mentions sheep and a gatekeeper. Now the shepherd would lead the flock to graze and to feed And then during the day and then at night, the shepherd would bring the sheep back to the sheepfold for protection and rest during the night. And the gatekeeper was there to let in the shepherd who was leading the sheep. He would give the shepherd proper access into the sheepfold upon seeing him. He'd be able to identify him that this is a true legitimate shepherd and welcome him in. And the shepherd would lead the sheep into the sheepfold. Now, there's also mention of thieves and robbers. Thieves and robbers were not allowed into the sheepfold for obvious reasons. They're thieves and they're robbers, right? They clearly had intentions to harm the sheep, to steal the sheep. And because they weren't allowed into the sheepfold, they sought other means of access, right? They're trying to climb over the wall and get around in some other way to get access to the sheep. Now, in verse 6, 
Jesus tells us that as he told this parable or gave this illustration, it says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Now, this is often the case. Whenever Jesus is giving a parable in other gospel accounts or whenever Jesus is giving some sort of illustration or figure of speech, it's often the case that his unbelieving hearers, particularly the Pharisees, don't understand what he's saying. And this is also intentional. They don't understand what he's saying because they're blind to the truth. And Jesus is speaking in these ways to expose their blindness. To expose the fact that they cannot see clearly. So Jesus in giving this illustration or this parable is in one sense to expose them, but also to condemn them for their blindness. Now I think something as a side note that's important. When we consider not only this illustration or parable, but whenever we consider an illustration or parable. And that is to let the main things be the plain things. And let the plain things be the main things. I don't know who said that before me. I stole it from someone. I don't remember who. But the point being, whenever we approach a parable or an illustration, I think it can be really, really easy to overextend the meaning. To try and draw out and apply and interpret every piece of the parable or the illustration. And at worst, this can lead us to distorting the intended meaning. It can lead us to distorting it, corrupting it in, in some sense, leading us to miss the overall point. And at the very least, according to Calvin, he says, those who scrutinize every part of a parable very closely are wasting their time. So on one hand, you're either distorting the intended meaning On the other hand, you're just wasting your time. How do we know what the main and plain things are? Particularly here in this parable. How do we know? Well, because Jesus interprets them for us. He explains them. And that's what we'll do with the rest of our time this week. And then we'll continue explaining this parable in a couple of weeks when we come back to the Good Shepherd. So look with me at verses 7 through 10. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, in this explanation that Jesus gives in these verses, we'll see four truths concerning this true door of the sheepfold. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, the first thing we'll notice and consider is the necessity of the door. Why is a door necessary? Why is it even needed in the first place? Well, simply put, by nature, we are outside of the sheepfold. We're outside of the sheepfold, and we lack true access into it. 
Meaning, we are outside of the true, abundant life that only exists by being in the sheepfold. I.e., in being in fellowship with God, being a part of His fold. It is in being a part of His fold, in His fold alone, that we have true life and life abundantly. And this was ultimately what we were created for, is it not? If we go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, where we've spent a number of weeks or months at this point, God created man. And He created man for His glory, to be an image bearer and to reflect His image throughout the world, and to multiply and create more image bearers. And he created man so that man would glorify God by carrying out all of the ordinances and all of the things that he commanded man to do. And we see in the garden that Adam walked with God. A part of man's created purpose was to walk in fellowship and communion with God. But man fell. Man sinned and he fell from his created purpose. He rebelled against God He disobeyed. And if we go back to Genesis 3.22, it mentions just before this a number of consequences that God declares to the serpent and then to Adam and to Eve as well. And at the very end of chapter 3, God says this, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. And live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. To work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword. That turned every way. To guard the way. To the tree. Of life. So man sins. And they are cast out of the garden. They are cast out of fellowship and communion with God. And all humanity was plunged into this ruin. And was plunged into separation and alienation from God. And ever since, ever since, man has been seeking to re-enter or recreate what was lost but has ultimately failed to do so and will continue to fail to re-enter or recreate what was lost. And we see this happening throughout the biblical narrative. I mean, immediately after the fall, what happens? We see Cain rise up against his brother Abel. And God curses Cain. He gives him a mark. And Cain becomes a wanderer in the land. And then ironically, Cain sets up for himself a city called Nod, which means wanderer. And he seeks to create this city to reestablish, in a sense, what was lost when man was separated from God and alienated from God and cast out of God's communion and fellowship. And this continues to build and build and build. Right? The Tower of Babel, if you remember. Humanity comes together and seeks to create this tower to God. In Babylonian, meaning gateway of God. 
And they seek to do this. They seek to do this of themselves and by themselves and ultimately for themselves. And what does God do? He disturbs their languages. He confuses their tongues and their casts and they're spread out all over the world. So man's alienation from God continues and man's alienation from himself, from themselves, ultimately continue. So we see the biblical narrative. And within the biblical narrative, man seeking to return back or to regain something of what was lost in that fellowship with God and that life that they had or that life that was promised to them had Adam never sinned and never disobeyed. And we see this in life today. Man continuing to seek to regain, to re-enter and recreate what was lost. And the more that we try, the more that man tries, he fails. And it's almost as if he gets further and further and further away from what they were trying to ultimately get back. We need this door. We need this door because outside this door, we have no access to God. And we have no access to true life. And not only outside this door are we wanderers and outsiders trying to find a way in, but we are also condemned sinners. We're also condemned sinners. We are outside of communion with God and of abundant life and blessing. But we are also under God's just wrath because of our sin and our violation against Him and the offenses that we have committed against Him. We are wandering, condemned sinners. This leads us to consider the identity of the door. Because God does not just leave us altogether as wanderers and outsiders. He makes a way. He provides a door. Look with me at verses 7 and 9. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He reiterates himself again in verse 9 and then adds some more layers to this. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus himself is the door. Jesus is the entrance and the access point into fellowship with God and into true life. Jesus is the entrance into the sheepfold. Now, the arrival of this door was not altogether unexpected. Surely, maybe the way in which he came, the manner in which he came, the lowly estate in which Jesus came, that perhaps to many was very unexpected. But his coming, the coming of a Messiah, was not 
unexpected. God had been graciously promising a coming one, a coming Messiah, a coming Redeemer, a coming Savior, a coming King, one who would deliver His people, would redeem His people. And throughout the entire biblical narrative and Old Testament history, God had been graciously saving and redeeming a flock for Himself. I mean, one example we see very clearly in the story of Noah and the flood, where God judges the entire world for their sins, but God graciously redeems and saves one man and his entire family. And then again later, we see another great act of God's grace and redemptive work in God's preservation and deliverance of his people, Israel, out of Egypt and out of their bondage and out of their slavery and captivity to Egypt as he makes a way through the Red Sea. And they leave and are delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea. And these are just a couple of the big examples that we see in Scripture of God's redemptive work and His gracious hand moving to save a people for Himself. But each time, each time God did this, we saw a type and we saw a picture of the grace that was to come. Those acts were great acts, gracious acts in and of themselves. But again, they also pointed us forward. They pointed us forward to the greatest, the most full expression of God's grace and redemptive work. And now, here we see in John chapter 10, with the mention of this door, God's gracious acts and promises find their chief expression and grand fulfillment in the door who is Jesus. Again, Jesus proclaims, I am the door to the sheepfold. And upon Jesus' claim and declaration that he himself is the door of the sheepfold, he is claiming something that is exclusive. Something that is reserved only for him. This leads us to consider our third truth or point. The exclusivity of the door. Jesus is the only door. Again in verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find Pasture, there are no other legitimate points of entry. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that one enters in to the sheepfold. Notice how Paul talks of Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom For all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And in another passage, likely assuming from the Apostle Paul again in this, what may be a sermon from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, 
through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. There is no other mediator between God and man. There is no other person. There is no other person who could sacrifice themselves to make proper atonement for sins, to sprinkle clean, to bring about a pure conscience. There is no one else other than Christ in Christ alone. He is exclusively our mediator. He is exclusively our door to the sheepfold. Him and Him alone. Now this exclusivity is one of the most offensive aspects of Christianity and of Jesus' teachings. We can say a lot of things about Jesus, especially, I forget who I was talking to this morning, I think it was Russ, especially about Jesus during Christmas time because not a lot of people are offended by, you know, a baby's birth, right? There's a lot of joy and happiness celebrated around here. So our society kind of loves to celebrate this and they're not too offended by it. But when we get to other holidays like Easter, where it's very much in your face, that the one who we're ultimately celebrating is the one who came and lived and died to make substitutionary atonement for sins. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, thereby proving and establishing his power and authority over death itself, and vindicating all of his truth claims and all of the works that he had done. Now that is something that can be a little bit more offensive. And it is more offensive. Why is it so offensive? Why is the exclusivity of Christ as the door so offensive to so many? Well, because there are many outside the sheepfold. And there are many who do not enter through this door. I could summarize this group of people into two categories. Those who are outside are made up of one group, which are those who want nothing to do with the door that's given. They may hear that there is a door. They may hear of Jesus and they may hear of the gospel, but they want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with him. They will find another way in. They will make and find their own way in. And the claim that Jesus is the only way is deeply offensive to the pride of those that want to seek and find their own way. There's another group that may find this offensive as well. And it's those that think that they have entered the door that's given. And this is first seen in the Pharisees and the religious leaders. 
I mean, Jesus refers to those people as thieves and robbers. Again, in in verse 1, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, the door which is Christ, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Verse 8 again, he says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Again, this is why we see this parable or this illustration as a clear attack or judgment against the Pharisees. Because Jesus is making it clear that you are the ones who truly miss the door. Who are seeking to make your own way. Who are seeking to enter into another way. You may think that you are entering in through the proper way. But Jesus ultimately is saying what? That I am the only door. Abraham, if we go back to Russ's sermon last week, Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. So this text, hopefully you're not hearing this, when he says all who came before me, Jesus is not saying that everyone who came before him, every religious leader, including the patriarchs, failed to see Christ. Ultimately, that cannot be true. For we know that the patriarchs and the Old Testament saints were were looking through the various types and shadows that God had graciously given to them in the Old Testament. They were looking through those by faith and grabbed a hold of the promised Messiah and the Christ to come and were saved by grace. And those, we could say, who led the people in this way Men like Moses, Abraham, these were men of faith. Everyone that's mentioned in Hebrews 11, right, were true and proper leaders and Old Testament saints who were looking forward to this proper door. But the religious leaders and the Pharisees, again, make up this group of people who thought they had it right and thought they were looking to the proper entrance. And this is not only seen in the Pharisees then, and the religious leaders then, that Jesus is speaking to, but this continues to be seen today by many false professors. By many who claim to be looking to Christ, who claim to be trusting in Christ, but ultimately are not. And how are they not? Well, one, because they're making the door Jesus plus something else. They're making the door Jesus plus something. They're adding to Jesus' work in some way. They're adding to the declaration that Jesus alone is the mediator. And they're making some sort of work an added, an added means. Or an added category that must be fulfilled before we enter in. Whether that's a certain number of works, whether that's partaking of certain sacraments and partaking in certain sacraments the right way, whether that be a certain amount of Sunday mornings of church attendance, whatever that may be. But there are many today who are making the door Jesus plus something. I see this often as well just over the years of doing student ministry in the lives of students 
will ultimately lay claim to entering the door, but the door is ultimately the faith of their parents. And yes, they believe in Jesus, but ultimately their claim to entering through the door is a little bit of them and a little bit of their parents' faith. I think we have to be really, really careful of making the door Jesus plus something because I think it can happen to us as well. And it may not be through adding good works and obedience. I mean, that can happen. But I think maybe what can tend to happen for some of us, and particularly even myself, is I make the door Jesus plus certain doctrinal distinctives. That you have not truly come through the door. You have not truly entered God's fold and God's sheepfold. You have not truly entered into salvation and eternal life until you've accepted Jesus and trusted in Him, but also some of these other particulars of doctrine that though important, don't hear me casting that aside, but we have now elevated our doctrinal distinctions And our belief in those distinctives to an equal level, if you will, with Jesus. And making it Jesus and. Again, that can happen very subtly. And we may not necessarily notice it all the time. But I just, we need to be careful. Because at the end of the day, Jesus alone is the one true door. Not Jesus plus something. Definitely not Jesus minus something, which can often also be the case. A claim to Jesus, but a Jesus who is less than the mediator. A Jesus who is less than the one who has atoned for our sins. A Jesus who is merely just a human example of good morals and a good life. That's a Jesus that is minus, that is less than. But it's Jesus as revealed and made known in the scriptures. And this Jesus and this Jesus alone that is the one true door into fellowship with God, into salvation, and into true abundant life. Now with that being said, by way of application, I want to consider fourthly the blessings of entering this door. The blessings. And this will go rather quick because I've been alluding to them throughout this entire sermon. But the blessings of entering into this door. Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The first blessing that we notice is that we enter into fellowship with God. By going through this door, we enter into the sheepfold. We enter into God's fold. We enter into God's covenant community. We enter into life with Him. 
Notice what's said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. He says, for through him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, speaking to the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By entering in through this door, we enter into communion and fellowship with God. We enter into his fold. We enter into his covenant community. We enter into his family as sons and daughters. And thereby having an eternal inheritance. We have access to God. Secondly, we receive salvation. We receive salvation from God's wrath. Again, all who are outside of the door, all who are outside of the door are outsiders and wanderers who are under God's just condemnation. And by receiving salvation, we are saved from God's wrath and we're saved from our enslavement to sin and we're saved from life outside of the door. And we are saved into life and communion and fellowship with God. Our sins are atoned for. And we are adopted and united into the family of God. We have fellowship with God. We have salvation. And we also receive protection and care. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he'll go in and out and find pasture. In entering into God's fold, and entering into His family and His covenant community, we come under His fatherly care and protection. His providence and dealings with us are always, always, ultimately, for our good and for His glory. He cares for us. He provides rest for our souls. He provides nourishment and security. And all that a sheep could possibly need. This language that we see here definitely ought to recall back to Psalm 23. Where we're told that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all my days of life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever by entering in this door we are reconciled to God we gain access to him 
We are adopted into His family. We receive full salvation. We receive His fatherly care and protection and love. Unbelievers this morning, I pray that you, if you are here and you're not looking to this door, I pray that you would look to Him in faith. That you would trust in Him and believe. And that you would enter into God's fold through Christ and Christ alone. For those who are trusting in Christ this morning, I pray that you would rest. That you would rest and rejoice. You would rest and rejoice in Christ our door. And in doing so, that you would also proclaim Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your gracious work in sending your son to be our means of access back into fellowship with you, of entering into communion and life with you, an abundant life where you care for us, where you protect us, where you guard us, where you watch over us. God, I pray this morning that we would grow in our faith and our love and our delight for you. That we would grow in our faith in Christ our door. God, we pray in all things that you are glorified, that Christ is exalted, and that we, your people, are edified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.